0: Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist and professor. Today on the show, we have a special guest with us, Lisa Erickson. Please introduce yourself to Podcast Land.
1: Thanks, Kirk, for for inviting me to be on. I've been a professor at Antioch for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I have a private practice in Seattle, Washington, where I specialize in working with gifted adults, addictions, and trauma. I also am clinical director at Cowlitz Tribal Health Seattle, which serves urban Native American
0: children and youth. What are your tasks involved there?
1: Program development, supervision, and I see a few clients there as well.
0: So how long have you been working in the field?
1: Since before a lot of people were born.
0: <laughs> Over 30 years. Over 30 years. Yeah. Okay, so very experienced.
1: Yes, I've been... President of the state Washington Mental Health Counselors Association, I was co-chair of the Department of Health Advisory Committee, and I do continuing education trainings on topics like giftedness, but mostly professional ethics, technology, things like that. And then nationally, I present on topics related to giftedness and working with the high IQ clients.
0: Okay, which is today's topic. You're here to talk about clients with high IQs and the issues that clinicians should consider, perhaps, when working with people like that. So tell us about that.
1: First of all, having taught for 20 years, I realized that no one ever talked about the characteristics of having a high IQ. And so when I stumbled into this material, I was shocked. So I started reading... Pretty voraciously, and realized that it was pretty significant that most clinicians don't know that there are some neurological differences associated with having a high IQ, and they're frequently misdiagnosed.
0: Hmm. Like what? What might they get misdiagnosed with?
1: ADD, ADHD is a big one. If you can imagine the bell shaped curve that we're all sort of familiar with, with the high point being average IQ, Mm -hmm. and on the far left are people who have cognitive disabilities, and people on the far right have a high IQ, and that's usually considered to be 130 or greater. So on the left side, which is the cognitive disability end of things, we understand that those folks are going to um, look different, think different, depending on the nature of Their disability. But what most clinicians don't know is that there are also some neurological differences on the far right side, and those are called overexcitabilities. If you don't understand how to identify a gifted person, you may encounter those overexcitabilities and pathologize them.
0: Overexcitable, like very excitable?
1: No. Overexcitabilities is a phrase that was coined by the most famous psychologist you've never heard of. His name is was Kazimierz Dabrowski, and actually, I said psychologist, but I think he was a physician and a psychologist. And he did a lot of work with in Poland with people who uh, were cutters. Uh, were very creative and talented people, and he ran um, a psychiatric hospital. So he coined the term overexcitabilities, which in Polish the correct translation would be supersensitivities. So it's a, just a lousy translation from the Polish with overexcitabilities. But in Gifted Land, overexcitabilities is the term that's used, and as a shortcut, they're called OEs.
0: Okay. And what would they refer to observationally with people?
1: There are five OEs or overexcitabilities. One is psychomotor. So that person is going to be really antsy. They're going to be potentially quite athletic. They have a lot of energy. Okay, so there's sensual. It's not a sexual thing. It's being very tuned into uh, music abrasive things like not liking scratchy wool, not liking tags on the back of shirts, not liking wrinkles in your socks. That's me. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) I, I will, you know, you cut the tag off the shirt, and then you can still feel the scene. Yeah, you can still feel it. So I like shirts that have no tags when they sell them. You mm-hmm. know? And wool shirts or wool sweaters just drive me nuts. Awful.
1: Yeah. People who have a sensual overexcitability, they also like new sensory experiences. They like music, food. They're just sort of really oriented towards sensory experiences. Hmm. The third overexcitability is intellectual overexcitability. And so those are people that are very curious. They ask a lot of questions. In a class, they can be a pain in the you-know-what. They are pretty passionate about learning everything they can about the topic that interests them, and they enjoy problem-solving. The fourth overexcitability is imaginational overexcitability. These are people that as children may have had imaginary playmates. They created fantasy worlds. They are very expressive and vivid in their vocabulary. Um, They enjoy storytelling, so they might embellish things. They like really amusing visual things, uh, private jokes, And they often can link unrelated things in creative ways. And the last one is emotional overexcitability. And that's where a person is very sensitive, can know what another person is feeling before the other person acknowledges it or knows it. They get very attached to other people. They might have a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, and they're also very tuned in to being able to express how they feel.
0: So is the idea that people with high IQs are more likely to have those sensitivities?
1: Yes. However, there are combinations of them. So Dabrowski, the most famous Polish psychiatrist you never heard of, who was friends with Maslow, Carl Rogers, you know those folks, he said that you really need to have intellectual overexcitability and emotional overexcitability. That those are like some of the most common overexcitabilities. He said that you know, like if you have a sensual overexcitability and it's not balanced by other things, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, I do a lot of work with addictions, and so I end up with a lot of very smart alcoholics who, in, on some level, manage their intensity by using substances. Hmm. With these overexcitabilities, a hallmark feature of people with a high IQ is that they tend to be pretty intense.
0: So you have a kid who's born with a capacity for high intelligence. And as a part of that, associated with that comes these sensitivities. Or, Or is the theory that when you have these sensitivities, that is the definition of what makes you score high on intelligence tests.
1: It is possible to be to have a high IQ and to not have overexcitabilities. But in some ways that's a bit of an unusual combination. And that sort of renders the person with a high IQ but without overexcitabilities it, it kind of, I think it has sort of a suppressing effect on their IQ because they don't have that intensity. Another word that is used in giftedness is some, is a word called entelechy. And that's like a, a real internal drive to be as good as you can possibly be. So people with high IQ and passion can go further than people with a high IQ without it, and so passion is sort of a more understandable word than overexcitabilities. But clinically, knowing about the overexcitabilities will lead to a greater, a better diagnosis. Those overexcitabilities are frequently pathologized. There's a common misconception that a gifted person—what problems could they possibly have? Why would they be a problem in school? Well, there are some real reasons. They're often not identified. They're bored in class, so they may act out. They might be very high energy, and so a teacher might say, that's a kid with a learning disability. Or the kid might be really bored, stare off into space, be inattentive, and that is can also be misdiagnosed as a learning disability. Now, I'm not saying that gifted people don't have learning disabilities, but that diagnosis is very tricky to make, and the clinician needs to know about giftedness and learning disabilities. And the common diagnostic tool that's used to diagnose Learning disabilities has a very high false positive rate.
0: Right, so you have a kid that is, say, fourth, fifth grade, and is distractible, and maybe not getting such great scores on their on their homework because they, they aren't doing much of it then the teacher gets concerned and will often turn to ADHD and say, this kid needs stimulants. Right. And then they get referred to a clinician to evaluate them. And there's various different roads that that would take. And often it just involves a symptom checklist for the most part. Yeah, And someone says, and ask the mom or the teacher, is this person distractible? Yes. Does this person have a hard time staying on task? Yes. So for some of those people they might have an actual brain disorder or a brain mm-hmm. condition that has them have uh, a deficit and an ability to stay on task. Yes. For other kids, you're saying that they're so intelligent that they are bored and not paying attention, not because they're not capable of it, but because they're not stimulated enough for those that have the learning disability. If you stimulated them more, they would fall behind more because they have that disability for the kids who are exhibiting the same symptoms, the solution isn't stimulants, it's providing more stimulation yes, for, get, mm-hmm. for academic stimulation, harder work, more active work, more physical work, or sort of thing.
1: Right. So a common thing, if a child has finished an assignment, so let's say that Jane is working on long division. She's been given 10 problems. She's done them in nothing flat because she learned how to do them two grades ago. And she's like, give me something else to do. The teacher is inclined to then give her more long division problems. That's not a useful strategy.
0: What would you suggest?
1: Well, first of all, I don't know Jane. And there are a variety of overexcitabilities. Mm. But I'd want to know what interests Jane What is, you know, so, okay, so she figured out long division a while ago. She's sitting around twiddling her thumbs while her peers are still struggling away at it. And she's thinking, there must be something wrong with me because maybe I'm not doing this right. Everybody else is working really hard at it, and and I'm not. I must be missing something. Or... She's really bored, and she tries to, like, you know, engage her other students to get them kind of to have something to respond to. Mm -hmm. And so the teacher doesn't think, oh, Jane is gifted. The teacher thinks, Jane is a problem. I'm having to spend a lot of time, classroom time, managing Jane.
0: I imagine that there are listeners out there, that might have kids mm-hmm. and they might be going through something like this where they have a kid that is having some issues or a client, obviously. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of confusion about how to evaluate this, I'm guessing, because I'm just it's just me reacting to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I think that it sounds, you know, very valid and I'm sure there's lots of research that goes behind this and it makes total sense. But I could also see a kid who actually does have a learning disability or does have yes. ADD, And parents feel compelled to find alternate possibilities sometimes. Teachers don't always. Mm-hmm. But parents don't want to believe that their kid is disabled. They don't, they don't want to believe their kid doesn't have the capacity. They would much rather believe that their kid is too smart. Mm-hmm. Do you ever run into things like that? And, and what kind of advice might you give parents? Okay, that so,
1: treatment? you know, it's kind of interesting that... This is a pretty common question for people that don't understand giftedness. It's not so much that parents want their child to be gifted. If their child is gifted, they have a hard time keeping up with the child. So having a gifted child as a parent is less, oh, Johnny is fantastic, and of course he's gifted because he's our child. It's not like that the vast majority of the time. It's more like, oh, no, what do I do now? Because they're intense, and they want a lot of stimulation, and they're, they, if they get bored, that's not a good thing. They have that rage to learn, entelechy, that drive. And so parents have to work with their kids to understand overexcitabilities, to not pathologize the overexcitabilities, but to help a child manage them. Mm-hmm. Then the other thing that happens is that there's a, a cultural resistance to acknowledging giftedness, mm-hmm. that it's perceived as bragging mm-hmm. or being inflated um, or being grandiose. I once had a, um, a really compelling email from someone who came from a very large country where there was a big emphasis on academics and he had scored like in the top 5 of the people in his country and he wanted some mental health treatment in his country and his psychiatrist did not know anything about giftedness and said you're narcissistic so when he came to the United States he'd found my website And he sent me this really long and impassioned story about, could this be me? And I was deeply moved by that. That's actually more often the case.
0: Right. We have a very weird relationship with intelligence in this culture. Yes, we do. You're supposed to be smart. But if you act like you're smart or appear smart or are smart and somehow it gets out it is seen as as bragging or you're inflating yourself or you're narcissistic right someone who says i mean i could just totally imagine this this person that that emailed you i could imagine him without knowing the cultural landscape, I could imagine him telling someone, yeah, I, I have an IQ of 145. And a lot of people really bore me with, with their slowness. And at my work, I, I can figure things out better than my boss can because I think he or she has a IQ of average IQ. I, I can see the gears turning in that person's head, and I, I'm, I'm I'm a step ahead. of All that can be true because that's what intelligence is. That's what aptitude is. But, of course, if someone said that, admitted the reality, they they would be labeled narcissistic faster than you could, you know, say narcissistic, which takes a little bit of long, long time to say. <laughs> um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, we have people with low IQ that, of course, we don't want to talk about that either. We have a really hard time talking about But we about have it.
1: compassion for them.
0: Right. But we also don't want to look at them. We don't want to talk about them. We don't want to think about it. I mean, the thing that I often tell people is that, and the thing I often remind myself, is that the average IQ is 100 by definition, right? And 50% of people have an IQ above 100 and 50% have below 100. And the reason why I say that to myself is I have to remind myself that there's a wide spectrum of intelligence in our species And that those variations will manifest themselves in our interactions with people. And some people are going to be highly intelligent and able to figure things out very quickly, and some people are not. And they don't look different. Smart people don't look different than average people. They don't look different than below average people. Everyone looks basically the same, but their brain is different.
1: Yes. So, you know, in the autism community, there's a growing identification with the concept of being neurodiverse. and gifted people are also neurodiverse. Now some years ago I I wrote an article that was posted on a gifted website and then you know people could write comments about it and this woman wrote and I've I've kept that because I think it's really very good. I'm not sure if she was a clinician or not but she said she was in a diversity workshop and part of the group task was to identify what minority groups you are a part of. And she said, I felt very comfortable saying I'm a lesbian and being out about that. But what I could not say and did not feel comfortable saying is that I'm gifted.
0: Yeah, that's something that I don't think I've heard anyone talk about in terms of a minority identity
1: but there are differences. I mean,
0: there's disabilities as, as, a, as, a, as an identity that people will talk about, but not giftedness.
1: Right. That's and so giftedness is not a disability. Yeah. And it's important for clinicians to remember there's a big difference between being atypical and being abnormal. Yeah. And that's not to say that gifted people don't have mental health problems. But a lot of what normal giftedness is looks like pathology.
0: So, what other kinds of pathologies might get? Okay, uh, so
1: um, so we've talked about ADD, ADHD. We've talked about narcissism. So, let me, just let me say a little bit more about narcissism because that's also a topic that I've done a lot of training on. A gifted person can, as you very accurately pointed out, a gifted person can get very frustrated at the speed of other people's work. So that means that oftentimes they work better alone. So like group projects, group learning experiences in graduate school, those often don't work very well for gifted people because they end up doing a lot of the work or being quite dissatisfied with the, uh, the work that other people in their team have produced. Okay, so back to your question about what other diagnoses? that drive for perfectionism, that drive to be the best they can be to like fully exert their gifts and to go after the things that really interest them, that can uh, look like anxiety for some people because they're they're really amped up and intense and then they can get quite disappointed in themselves about not doing a good enough job. So they may have a vision of, of what they want to accomplish and be working really hard towards that. And then when they fail at that, failing is a relative term, they will be disappointed in the outcome and feel anxious about the difference between what they imagined and then what they were able to create.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking of a teenager that was like that. He was smart Mm -hmm. and would not get very good grades but he would always sign up for the most difficult AP prep courses mm-hmm. and for, for years. And he would insist on taking those hard classes. And he was, like I said, smart. But there was this perfectionism that would come into play. Right. And he would ultimately end up getting C's. And he would be very disappointed in himself. And it was this ongoing cycle.
1: Yeah, so another issue that that is pretty prevalent for gifted people, especially if they have a strong moral and ethical sensibility, and that can be tied into the emotional overexcitability. So these are like little children who are very disturbed about unfairness that they see around them, and actually lately we've there have been a couple of really. um Well-known children, Um, this little girl who was shot in Afghanistan because she wanted to go to a school and she was denied access and she was shot in the process. And now she's, you know, she's addressed the UN, et cetera. So that's probably a little girl that's gifted. And actually she was on Jon Stewart and Jon Stewart was just like completely enamored of her. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes gifted children and gifted adults can be very distressed by what they observe, and they wonder, why am I in a world like this?
0: Is that because they're smart enough to pull everything together and see yes. the hypocrisy and the difficulty and right. the way humans treat other people? Yes. And, and lesser IQ people might have a harder time having that I don't know how to say it, but having maybe it's easier for them to forget about it or. Yes. Okay.
1: This can be very difficult for parents of gifted children if their child is oriented in that direction because their child will get very upset and they don't know how to soothe their child. And the child is sort of can see these awful things that are happening and they don't have the emotional maturity to help regulate their own feelings about it. So, existential depression is a big concern in gifted land.
0: And do you have a personal explanation for that or is there a research explanation? I mean, is it related to what I said earlier about just not being able to forget the reality?
1: So, I think for some people it's not being able to forget. For other people, I had a uh, I worked with somebody who Part of their lament was, we live in an ever-expanding universe, and at some point, that universe is going to collapse. And everything we know, and even everything we don't know, will cease to exist. So what's the point? So these are the kind of existential concerns that can really rattle around in a gifted person's head.
0: Interesting. So that person might be misdiagnosed with depression when in reality, I mean, they might have the symptoms of depression, but not the neurological condition that would lead someone to have depression for no reason. They're depressed because of this existential reality that they think about a lot.
1: So for a gifted person who's depressed, they may get medication and... The part of their depression that is biochemical resolves and they're still left with the existential depression. Mm. So these are, these are people whose minds want to think about the larger issues. Now that's not true of every gifted person. So the, thing to remember, so if we go back to our bell-shaped curve, if you're on the far left side with a cognitive disability, the range of things you're going to think about is quite reduced. But if you're on the far right side, the kinds of things that you're taken with, that uh, you're passionate about, are very diverse. So, Sometimes I use this as an example. So if, um, if you're talking to just sort of a regular person and you say, how about those mariners? The person will say, yeah, that was a great game. But a gifted person might say something like, you know, it's a very interesting game statistically, and it reminded me of the game that was played in 1941, blah, 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 blah. Now, we might think of that person as having Asperger's, for example, but not necessarily. And they might be talking to another gifted person who would say, you know, I think in many ways the reason the game was won because was because of the humidity and the direction that the wind was blowing. And so that made it easier for it to be a high scoring game and that's really related to how the stadium was built relative to other elements in the in the atmosphere and so if you get two gifted people together and they both like baseball One of them is going to like the history of baseball. One of them is going to be very interested in how that has affected America.
0: Are you saying that when they're children, they're more likely to be diagnosed with a pathology than they are as an adult?
1: No, and as an adult, because the other thing that happens is that in school where most giftedness, if it's identified, gets identified there— There's never any discussion about the social and emotional aspects of giftedness. And so once they're out of school, people tend to forget. So it's not unusual for me to get a telephone call from somebody saying, I found your website and I started to cry. And I know they're not talking about the page on depression or the page on addiction. There's only one page I have that evokes that kind of response and that's on giftedness. Cuz they read the characteristics and they're like, "Oh my god, I thought I was I thought something was wrong with me."
0: Yeah, I could imagine that based on what you're saying that because we don't talk about it and because we pathologize it and because we also look down on people who talk about their giftedness that when they come across this Explanation and this validation for their experience that it might be the first time they've ever come across anything like that.
1: It's very analogous to the coming out process for gays, lesbians, bisexual, and transgendered folks.
0: So how can we help people in this situation?
1: Well, I think that the, the most important thing is to, to read about overexcitabilities. And then it will be very clear how easy it is to misdiagnose. So gifted people can also look manic. Some gifted people have a reduced need for sleep. Um, And all of this has to do with the way their particular brain is wired. This is an example of of the neuroatypicality.
0: Right. I can imagine someone that's very smart speaking very quickly, not sleeping very much at night, having a lot of grandiose ideas about saving the world or changing jobs and and bettering their life because they've been thinking so much about it and a clinician misdiagnosing them with mania. I, I can, yeah. or hy- Hypomania, I can definitely imagine that.
1: Mm-hmm. But see, some of their thoughts are not indications that they're grandiose. It's their commitment to things being better or having a sense of what they might be capable of. But the other reason that I think people forget is because of the notion of stereotype threat. Actually, I was just in Indianapolis at the National Association for Gifted Children annual conference, and I presented on giftedness and stereotype threat. And I had uh, analyzed comments that teachers of gifted students had posted on a social media site about their experiences teaching gifted children, and there was an amazing number of comments about that the teachers were making. About I want them to be quiet about it. They're not supposed to talk about it. I, I tell them that they're, that it should show from what you accomplish rather than um, you talking about it. So there's even among people who make their life teaching gifted kids and being around giftedness, they're telling little children, don't talk about it. Mm. And so that, I think, contributes to forgetting.
0: Keeping people in the closet. Exactly. Making the kids feel bad for who they are and their right. abilities.
1: Yeah, or in their excitement about what they have just done Yeah, um, or what they want to do. Right. And if you're a gifted person of color and you're the only gifted person of color um, among the people that you know, you're going to have a very different experience
0: right.
1: than someone who's more
0: mainstream. Unless you're Asian like me. And, and then <laughs> um, and then you're just living up to your parents' expectations because mm-hmm. uh, um, of the value put on schoolwork and intelligence. And achievement. Yeah.
1: So there's a difference between achievement and ability. Hmm. And oftentimes, IQ tests are measures of achievement.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. I wanted to talk with you about yeah. that, because as we're talking about intelligence, it's been a while since I've talked or read about or thought about this, so it might come out all kind of jumbled. But in my reading of intelligence and the history of the construct of intelligence, uh, I think we have to say that it's a construct, the the, the idea of intelligence and the way that. Psychologists measure intelligence, they measure particular abilities Mm -hmm. and try and abstract from that a uh, what they call it G, right? Which is this variable that we've defined in psychology as intelligence. But of course, there are many other kinds of intelligences we could identify that aren't measured by standard IQ tests, like the uh, bodily intelligence and emotional intelligence and uh, musical intelligence and artistry intelligence and drama and none of those are evaluated in in these tests.
1: An important concept is something called asynchronous development and that speaks to what you just said that a person can have a gift in a certain area and not in another. Now the use of the term gifted is something that almost everybody hates. There's just not a good word to describe a high IQ person and even IQ as you have pointed out is in many ways a social construct although you know it it is measuring something there is something there but people take offense to the term gifted because it sounds like you're special in some way you've been given a gift that nobody else has neener 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 (laughs) and you know that's that's a loaded thing and Oftentimes, people want to say, well, you know, everyone has a gift. Yeah. Everyone is gifted. Right. But you know what? That's not really true.
0: Hmm.
1: Not everyone is tall enough to be an NBA player.
0: Right. Or we could say that not everyone is tall Right. There's an average height and some people are taller and some people are shorter. Right. And some people I, you know, my skin color is half Asian, half, half Swedish. And so that's my skin. That's what I have. Some people have darker skin than me. Most people have darker skin than me because I'm from Seattle and I have no tan, but, um, but, um, and that's just the way that it is. But because we p- place so much value on intelligence And because we don't talk about it very much, if someone were to claim that they had... Well, what other words might we use? I mean, high IQ, I've heard you say. What other words might we use besides gifted? Oh, my goodness.
1: Asking that question, you're stepping into a morass. Really? Why? Oh, it's just that this discussion has been going on since Terman.
0: Does it annoy you?
1: (laughs) It's... I've sort of given up on finding the right word. Is
0: it because you use the word gifted and heard so many people rail about the usage of that word, but that's the best one you have going for you? Because I know that experience, believe me. (laughs) As as a podcaster who gets emails from people who are angry, I I understand uh, the frustration of words and what they come with.
1: Yes. So this term has baggage. But you know what? The whole concept of some people being smarter than others, that's where the baggage is. So even if a word was found that was as benign as a word could be, it wouldn't take long for it to become a loaded term.
0: I see. In the same way that retarded now is a loaded term. We're starting to get away from that word. Originally, it was used to replace, I think, idiot or something and, and moron or moron and, mm. and, and, and well because we associate moron with, with an insult right. and retarded has become an insult it was re, re, I mean it just means slower and you know and then as I see slow that, that has negative connotations about it as well now we say developmentally disabled I've heard people say they want to get away from that you're using the term cognitive disability, cognitive disability. in the future my guess is that will be an insult and we'll have to get away from that word and, and I'm okay with that but it's just I think we just need to take into consideration um, the evolution of words. Like, for instance, the word colored, you know, these words are Negro. I mean, they they were originally, they had a different meaning for them. And as time goes on and as we use them as insults and as we use it to oppress and as we use it to put people down, the words become sort of evil. So so gifted has has an evil connotation when it didn't originally is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I think it has the connotation of you don't have something. So it's it's problematic. And so let's I want to go back to the woman who wrote a comment that said I was in a diversity training and I felt perfectly comfortable saying I'm a lesbian but the one thing that I couldn't say is that I'm also gifted. And so, you know, I think that if you were a gifted athlete You would have no problem displaying your trophies. Your parents would be proud of you. Your friends would be going, that's great, and patting you on the back. But if you win a science or a math competition, people don't say to you, Wow, that's great.
0: Like if you got straight A's or a high score and an IQ test, you wouldn't frame it and put it on the wall. Right, but you that would be that would be bragging.
1: Right. But you it's okay to do that if it's an athletic
0: accomplishment. Right.
1: You can have your medals framed on the wall. You can have pictures of yourself accepting yeah. trophies. I wonder if
0: it's because of the crowds. You know, when you're at a football game, there's a crowd and people are cheering. When you're taking an IQ test, no one's cheering <laughs> no. for you. Maybe we should tra- change it. You know, well, I guess we have debate team. That's sort of along those lines.
1: So recently the uh i don't follow chess but i heard on npr there was the the world championship in india and the the person who held the title of the best chess player in the world was indian and he was beat by a norwegian and this norwegian is young and he was a chess prodigy now i think he's in his 20s A really, really remarkable person. And the number of people in Norway that watched that chess match, which for me would be like watching paint dry, it was like 20% of all of Norway was tuned in to watch him.
0: And it's kind of a sport.
1: yes that's probably true you could
0: kind of make it into a sport right because i was even as i was talking about debate team it's kind of like a sport yeah uh iq testing is 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 not 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 considered a sport but you could you could i remember they used to have uh rubik's cube uh, uh, contests you know so what is your website i'm curious lisaerickson.net lisaerickson.net
1: E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N
0: So you got the jump on that from all the other Lisa Erickson's (laughs) in the world because, you know, there's got to be a number Well,
1: there is lisaerickson.com A real estate agent in Minnesota But the last time I checked she might be in Florida now
0: Is there a lisaerickson.org that's
1: I don't know, probably
0: Some other kind of person Yeah. Yeah. Um, So they can go there and they can click around and find your gifted tab or page yeah. and yeah. you have an explanation there. And so I, I, I want to also just talk to the clinicians out there. So what, if they were to work with someone and they think, Hmm, I, I wonder if my client kid or adult is gifted and, and some of the issues that they're facing have to do with that without it being identified clinically or even for the client themselves, what might they do? And I know that's a very general question, but...
1: I wrote an article for uh, Parenting for High Potential, which is a division of NAGC, that was really for parents about how to vet a therapist. Because many therapists will say, oh, I work with gifted people but they don't really know anything about giftedness. Or they say, oh, my child is gifted. Or I'm gifted. None of these are qualify a, a clinician to work with giftedness. Huh. And just as uh, a common lament in gifted land is I had to find eight therapists. I had to go through eight therapists until I found one who knew anything about this. So... What was the original question?
0: What should clinicians do?
1: So clinicians need to think about intelligence. They need to read up on that. They need to study overexcitabilities.
0: Is there a particular book you would recommend? Just one? Yes. Did you write a book?
1: No, I've only written articles. Oh. <laughs> so an excellent book for clinicians is Misdiagnosis and Dual Diagnosis of Gifted Children and Adults. Hmm. By web at all, and on the cover, the, the diagnoses that are referenced because these are the most common misdiagnoses: ADHD, bipolar, OCD, Asperger's, and depression.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned bipolar because in the very early days of this podcast, five years ago, I received a lot of emails regarding an episode we did about bipolar, and one. Woman just finished a documentary, and I wish I remembered the name, but I can't, but it's a documentary about bipolar, and it's a lot of interviews with people with bipolar, and one of the things that she was saying was that it cut, carries with it often a lot of creativity and a lot of intelligence, and that's been shown in in empirical research for a while now. And so in some ways, this is not what you're talking about, because what I'm talking about is maybe dual diagnosis. Yes. Is, is that what you're talking about?
1: And gifted people can be bipolar. Gifted people can be ADHD. Gifted right. people have mental health problems like everyone else. Right.
0: But also a gifted person could be mistaken for having bipolar when they don't. Exactly. Because they are excitable. They're intense. They, they're intense. They're they,
1: perfectionists.
0: They get sad because the weight of the world is on on their soul because they can see through the through the veil yes and they will get down on themselves because their social interactions at school aren't going so well and it kind of downward spiral from there and they can get angry about that and so it never began with a biochemical difference for them it was purely based on their giftedness which led to them exhibiting all the bipolar symptoms that's right that's what this book is about okay
1: yeah and it's Really great because it has like decision trees. It's, so let's just take the biggest one, ADHD. Most clinicians understand that it's overdiagnosed. and oftentimes the referrer is a teacher. The, the really a cardinal feature of ADHD is that it exists across the board in all settings. If it only if the teacher is the only person that sees that behavior and the child is fine at home, That's a strong indicator of misdiagnosis.
0: And so let's say just given that example, they come into child therapy or family therapy. What might the therapist do to help relieve the symptoms that they are experiencing in school?
1: I would advocate for the the child to be in a more interesting and advanced classroom, either a pullout program or advancement or in a gate-track gifted and talented education.
0: When I was a kid, they called it SAGE. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> SAGE, S I don't know what it stood for, but um, I remember it was all of us snobby kids in the second grade were in this SAGE <laughs> thing <laughs> and, and ridiculed because of that.
1: See, there you go.
0: The nerdy kids who watched Carl Sagan on PBS and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, so you're recommending that you advocate for... The children to be in some kind of gifted program. Do a lot of schools have these?
1: So I actually, even though I supervise a program that's children and youth, my, my practice is with adults. And so um, I'm, I'm actually meeting with a principal tomorrow to advocate for the child of one of our staff members at Cowlitz, because he's in special ed. And I don't think he should be in special ed.
0: I mean, I could imagine a teacher being bothered by gifted children. Yes, because they're making them work harder. I hate to say that, but, but or
1: they'll disagree. They'll call the teacher out on you know that's not really the way it is. This <laughs> is the real. This is the right answer.
0: <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm going to clue this in the podcast, but it brings okay. up. I remember I was in the fourth grade. And the teacher said, "This is how rain happens. We have we have condensation, and they build clouds. And, and this is the first time I ever heard of it. You know, I'm just like, whoa! So water droplets, and then it, the the clouds and the the wind blows the clouds. The clouds get to the mountains, like the Cascades, and then they want to get over the mountains, so they drop their water and they go over the mountains. You know, you can imagine speaking to fourth graders. Yeah. And I remember going in my head." clouds don't have brains they don't they don't want they don't want anything they can't they can't think I want to go over this mountain I'm going to drop water doesn't make any and so I raised my hand and I don't know the way I articulated the question but I think I said something like how does the cloud know to want to drop its water to go over and I remember she just looked at me and said well it just does
1: that is such an unsatisfactory answer (laughs)
0: and I remember just thinking to myself She doesn't know what she's talking about. And this is the first moment where I really remember thinking that teachers aren't necessarily very intelligent. They, they, that they teach things, but they don't necessarily know what they're teaching.
1: You know, I've kind of pulled together some stuff to give to a teacher tomorrow and I think kind of germane to this topic, it's like the difference between bright learners and gifted learners. Huh. And you and I, we have spent a lot of time teaching. Yeah. And so we know that gifted people in our classes can be a pain. Yeah. Because they'll want to dominate the discussion. Mm. They'll want to clarify your meaning of a particular word. Yeah, yeah. So they can be a management problem.
0: yeah. I mean, incidentally, I'm cool with them because I like their questions and Mm -hmm. I like their engagements. I don't like it when they challenge me, of course, but (laughs) but ultimately it's probably not a bad idea for me to be challenged, especially when I'm not being very smart or talking out of my ass or something, which happens on occasion.
1: (laughs) So, here are some characteristics of gifted people in the classroom they ask a lot of questions, they're very curious. They're mentally and physically involved. So you can imagine a child is up and about. Mm. Um, and also, if you, you, sometimes students will just, adult students will just go stand. Sometimes it's because they're having some physical pain, but sometimes it's just because they're antsy. Huh. So a gifted person in a classroom can have wild and silly ideas. They can play around and not pay attention, but test well. They can discuss in great detail. They're beyond their peers. They have strong feelings and opinions. They already know what you're talking about. It just takes one, two, or three repetitions for them to get it. And most people need six to eight repetitions. They're good at abstractions. They draw inferences. They initiate things. They're intense. They love learning. They invent things. And they're good guessers. And so that's that. See, that it takes some creativity to be a good guesser.
0: Yeah, it makes sense.
1: They like complexity, they're very observant, and they're highly self critical.
0: Uh, so, a major solution for these kids is more appropriate stimulation for them, more ac- activities that are at their level. Is that a main intervention in their life, or are there other things that? I mean, I'm guessing parents could help them understand themselves better yeah, and, and so help they, them interpret their world. Like the the rest of the world, lots of people don't like to move as fast as you and don't like to, when you're in a group project, sometimes you have to wait and be patient because some people, I see you frustrated with them and sometimes that you have to give them a little bit more time. So maybe you could go do something else and come back or you just kind of coaching yes. them on that level. Okay.
1: So there are... Websites that are devoted to giftedness, they have um, lots of really good articles to read. The, the vast majority of information about giftedness is oriented towards children and education. I would love to see more information oriented to adults, but the critical mass is with children.
0: So my forgotten question Mm -hmm. was, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but is the neurological theory that your nervous system is operating perhaps a little bit more faster or more sensitive or more something more active. And this not only increases your intelligence, but also your sensitivity and your activity level and your need for things to move faster and your your need for less sleep, all, all those things that might not, be intuitively at first associated with intelligence, but when you think about activity level neurologically, it is connected.
1: Yes. So understandably, looking at the gifted brain is not a high priority, because we have this great technology, and that technology is being devoted to brain diseases, which is very understandable. And a a hot topic these days is autism. So, But there are still some theories about how the gifted brain works, and I am not a brain scientist by a long shot, so you need to take this with a grain of salt. So some people believe that the gifted brain has greater myelinization, and so because the myelin sheath protects the power of the electrical signal, if there's more sheath, the electrical impulse can go further. And so that signal strength indicates may result in a higher IQ. Hmm. And so people with a higher IQ often link together things that you might not have associated.
0: But it would also increase your sensitivity to things because you would have perhaps uh, above average activation of For instance, nerve impulses of a tag being on the back of of your neck. Right,
1: (laughs) right. Another possible explanation does come out of the research that's being done with autism. So I'm actually very fond of this explanation for a number of reasons. First of all, there is some overlap between having a high IQ and Asperger's. So this is another interesting differential diagnosis question. And it's important if you work with autism that you also understand the characteristics of having a high IQ. Anyway, I'm not such a big fan of Simon Baron Cohen's view of autism. He's out of Oxford, and he's kind of the person that says that autism is and Asperger's is about the... The male brain, it's like the uber-male brain. So I think there are some problems with that, and that Asperger's is very underdiagnosed in women. An alternative to his theory comes out of neurology, which that speaks to that part of me that views neurology as somehow more scientific than psychology. Sorry. It's called the intense world theory, and I like that because it also lends some credence to the notion of overexcitabilities, mm. And so the notion is that people that are autistic, it's not that they can't connect, it's that they connect way too much. And so they have to distract themselves yeah. from how painful the world is.
0: Right. It brings in a lot of odd behaviors that you'll see in autistic people. like That
1: soothes them. Right.
0: That they're sensitive to noises and to lights and to... To people and to things, and that they they notice lots of data. That's I think that theory's been around for a long time. That they they're noticing too much things, and they can't ignore the noise mm-hmm. to focus on the things that other people will focus on, like the eyes of the person they're talking to. You know, they they're, they're they're so receptive to so many things that can't ignore everything the way that most people can like when yeah. I'm talking to you I'm ignoring this thing over here I'm ignoring all that over there because I'm focusing on you so that would make sense and given this sense, sense over sensitivity or overexcitability theory it, it would make sense in that way as well.
1: So yeah so I'm, I'm quite enamored of the intense world theory that you know is there's a lot of hard science that goes into that. So with gifted people who are autistic, because they're gifted, they sometimes harness their giftedness to manage their autism. And so this notion that people that are on the spectrum don't make eye contact, are headbangers, that's more often than not not the case when you're at the high-functioning end of the spectrum.
0: So you wanted to mention micro signs. Have. Yes.
1: Okay, so um, it may be that you are working with a client, and you're sort of puzzled, and you don't have the resources or the wherewithal to administer an IQ test, which IQ tests can be problematic, and you're trained in this test, but not in this test, and test B would be better than test A, but you only know test A. So some other indicators to look for are... A good vocabulary. I have clients use words that I've only read and I've never heard spoken out loud. Being able to connect disparate thoughts in a creative way. Having intense interests. Sometimes moving from topic to topic to topic. And the gifted person might feel like, I can't stick with anything i can't settle down there's something wrong with me but actually they're following their curiosity and they've learned and then they've learned everything they want to learn about that topic and it no longer holds interest for them so they move to another topic and if they don't understand that as a manifestation of their giftedness they're going to think something is wrong with me and there it's it's much really much more benign they've just sort of exhausted their interest in that topic and they want something else. So you you want to look for somebody with very diverse interests. Uh, look for sort of un, unusual skill sets. So let's say someone says, people really like to go fishing with me because we always find stuff. Well, why is that? Well, because I have a way of being able to see where there's a school of fish in the ocean. So I hear something like that, and I think, that person has unusual pattern recognition. So those are the kinds of things to pay attention to.
0: Might you also uh, get behind them and and turn their collar over to see if their tag has been <laughs> ripped off?
1: We We would only do that with people like you. <laughs>
0: Gifted. (laughs) I feel like I've learned a lot. I had no idea about this topic, honestly. I mean, I've obviously heard about gifted kids, and I imagine I've read some research in the past, but I can't recall having. This is a whole new area that I had no idea Existed, which is shameful given that.
1: um, No, it's the norm, which, you know, that I was so shocked when I stumbled into this material. So I just want to say one more thing, and that is that as clinicians, we would never imagine feeling competent to see clients if we didn't understand and were able to identify bipolar disorder, other diagnoses, but the incidence of bipolar is comparable to the incidence of giftedness. And clinicians don't know about giftedness, but clinicians feel like they should know about bipolar.
0: Right, because we think that giftedness is a gift and is only going to produce good things and will only produce wonderfulness and, and capability and less likelihood that they'll be in your office. But you're saying that for many people, it, it might actually lead them to arrive in your office and, and ask for Right,
1: help. because they feel different. They, don't, they can't find their peers. They think there's something wrong with them. They tend to – there's a higher incidence of introversion. That's sort of the percentage of introversion among gifted people is almost the reverse of what it is in a normal population. A really good book out right now is Quiet by Susan Cain. I watched her TED Talk, and I thought, hmm, gifted.
0: She's talking about introversion? Yeah. So any final thoughts about this topic you'd like to go out with?
1: I think that clinicians need to study and think about intelligence as an important factor when they're thinking diagnostically.
0: I agree. One of the things that... I've used this only on the other side of the spectrum, though, is that with my interns and supervisees, I'll often ask, where do you think they are in the IQ spectrum? But I'm usually asking if they have a low IQ, because the lower someone's IQ is, the harder it is for them to process your cognitive behavioral questions and, and, and interventions and homework. It, it takes a certain level of intelligence to integrate that, my cat is trying to get in your <laughs> trying to get in your purse You're, you tempted her with with a little uh, rag toe <laughs> yeah well don 't do that. she 'll she'll, she'll tear it apart um, she 's vicious with those kinds of things. I could um, tell
1: she was a vicious animal when I saw her
0: yeah, she just has that look in her eye yeah so yeah I've, i 've tried to at least introduce part of the intelligence conversation. But now I can introduce a whole lot more, which I, I think is important. So um, so to all you out there in podcast land, take this gift that Lisa Erickson has given you. And if you want to know more, go to lisaerickson.net. That's Lisa, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N dot dot net if you want to learn more about giftedness. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Lisa.
1: Thank you for having me. So